The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. Okay, we are live. I am Bill Amadeo of McManus and Amadeo and Grable and Associates. And tonight, I was asked to discuss the Dick Maller case, which was resolved. So I did agree to do a live on that um, after several people made such requests. For um, any enemies out there, I know I have some... Before we say I'm breaking an ethic rule, the client certainly wants to discuss this matter. It's a closed case, and there's no PR rule, so haters are going to hate. But let's just be real about a few things. And I don't get Tom Mankey. Tom Mankey is a so-called journalist that competes with Josh Champlain, and he just doesn't seem to report the facts. For example, today, because part of this is going to be defending Dick Maurer, and part of this is going to be fending the prosecutor's offices. I'm going to explain the law to people that don't understand the law today. Let's get that straight. Because let me be clear, the law was on Dick Maurer's side. That's what the First Amendment's all about. And if we're going to prosecute... And by the way, I don't give a shit where you stand in a political half circle. If we're going to re prosecute Republicans for saying shit on Facebook, we sure as hell better do it the Democrats doing the same thing. Either we call it down the middle, or we don't call it at all. But we're not going to have selective prosecutions, and I commend Scott Corner for following the Constitution today. Let me get one thing straight to Mr. Mankey. I know you tune in sometimes. Today, when you bashed Scott Corner about the CSC, the defendant in that case got not only three counts of CSC4, but they also got charged with using a computer to commit a crime. That's what we call a consecutive sentence, Tom. And that defendant's going to prison, going on lifetime SORA, and being deported from our country. So that's what a good prosecutor does. They make sure the community is protected. So if you're watching this, Tom, that's the way things should be. I know you played a role in me getting fired off your brother's case, but I think you see the results when a good lawyer kicks ass. So now, with that being said, let's talk about Dick Maurer. Let me explain the law, the false threat of terrorism statute that Dick was charged with. It's a 20-year felony in the state of Michigan. And the way the statute is written, it's a strict liability offense. Which means sometimes people get charged with no consequence to their freedom of speech. So when the charge was brought by Scott Corner, it had validity to a charge based on the law. But the law changed a lot during the course of this case. Let me be really clear when I say the law changed a lot. Okay? Our firm researched the hell out of this thing. And we presented motions. And the false threat of terrorism statute, while loosely written, was really meant for people who were threatened to shoot up schools, people threatening to kill institutions, not for a man expressing his political views on Facebook. Dick Maurer is a good man. He's a 67-year-old man who was never going to kill any Democrats. He was pissed off about the election. And when he was charged by the letter of the law, the charge was appropriate at the time. As the case proceeded, 
the case law was clear that Dick Maurer was protected by the First Amendment of the Constitution. So, if you don't like what Dick Maurer has to say, that's your call. But we sure as hell have to protect his right to say it. That's the reality here, guys. And I don't care what your views are on this. Dick Maurer got a dismissal because Scott Corner upheld the Constitution. Judge Matthew Stewart is a man who upholds the Constitution. And when these matters were being discussed, it was very clear that Dick Maurer had constitutional protection. Scott Corner took a stand to protect freedom of speech, and we got to applaud him for that. When I hear people online saying that it's okay to kill Democrats, that's stop. It's not okay to kill anybody. But if we're going to start hitting people with 20-year felonies for Facebook rants, I'm sure many of us out there will be prosecuted. It's ridiculous. This is a man who is not a member of the criminal justice system. He's a hard worker, and he was protected by the First Amendment. See, here's the job a prosecutor has, and people miss this. And certain prosecutors I work with pay very careful attention to what I'm about to say. Your job is simply not to prosecute defendants. Your job is also to protect the constitutional integrity of every case you have. So, when evidence is hidden, when you go to the press and make statements without having all the facts, that's not prosecutorial integrity. That's not restorative justice. That's f***ing destructive justice. And we don't get that at the Shiawassee Prosecutor's Office. At the Shiawassee Prosecutor's Office, and I battle with them all the time, they are a group of people that have heightened integrity. They prosecute on what they believe is justice. And after we reviewed the case, justice was dismissing the case against Dick Maurer. You really f***ing clear about that. This was not about politics. This was about protecting the document, which is our Bible. When we enter the field of criminal law, we do it because the Constitution means something to us. When we start compromising that Constitution for our own agendas, we got a problem. And I'm proud to say Scott Corner and Judge Matthew Stewart and the integrity of the Shiawassee criminal justice community, the Constitution still means something. It's something that's important to us. And I'm proud to be part of that community even though I'm not a resident. This is not about doing TikTok videos to prosecute innocent kids. This is about protecting the constitutional rights of not only victims, but defendants. So, Tom Menke, you really could learn a lot by Josh Champlain. If the Board of Commissioners, if you're watching this, other than Marley Webster, watch how the circuit court runs and takes care of business. That's the way you're supposed to do things. So I'm proud to be part of this case. I fought hard for Dick. And justice was served. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. 
Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. Bill Amadeo, McManus and Amadeo, and Grable and Associates. And I've been told I need to do more content. My content's been slacking lately, hasn't it? Yeah. The whole head nod there. So today, we're going to do a couple topics. We're going to talk about the Washington County judicial elections. Um, we're going to talk about the collapse of the 1980 Phillies. Because Scott Grable challenges my baseball knowledge, and it's tough for Scott to realize I know more about baseball than him. We're in the era where he grew up. Sorry, Scott. And, uh, yeah, you know, today was a weird day. So I got a federal court case right in Detroit. I'm, I'm going to Detroit. Swipe your credit card to pay the money for parking. And apparently at this parking lot, paying your fee does not guarantee you a spot. And I argued with the guy. It was interesting. He was going on and on. And I said, you know, if I pay my fee, I should get a spot, right? And he was bitching, this is Detroit. You don't get a spot just because you pay. Very weird, man. It's a weird day, yeah. Anyway, enough about that. I mean, I know some of you guys here tune in to hear me say weird stuff, so that was weird, but let's talk about those elections. You ready for that? All right. Let's talk about the circuit court. And I know there's been a lot of murmurs about this right now, about Arian Slay and her opponent. I know her opponent is a very qualified individual. Um, and I know tonight they were talking about Jim Harbaugh was going to be an event for Slay's opponent. Let me be clear about this. And I mean no disrespect to Coach Harbaugh, but if I was voting for somebody to teach me the power O offense, I'd listen to Jim Harbaugh. If I want somebody to be on the circuit court bench, you should listen to who's involved with the circuit court. There is nobody better than Arian Slay for that seat. Slay should have won the prosecutorial election. She's possibly the best legal mind in our county. Um, she's going to be fair on the bench. And I cannot think of a better person. During every election season, I'm always asked if I'm going to run for office. Am I going to run for circuit court? Am I going to run for district court? And obviously, if you know me, me in a black robe's not a good look, right? I, mean, I think I look good in black, but you know what I mean when I say that. I just not. I'm not judicial material. I am too pro defense. You know, I'm extremely pro defense. There's no question about it. Defense law is what's made me who I am, whatever the hell that is. What we want in a circuit court justice is somebody who's going to understand the law, understand sentencing guidelines, understand the importance of the community. And I just don't think anybody encompasses those attributes better than Arian Slay. We're behind Arian completely. Um, John Rise is a good friend of mine. He's big involved in her campaign. Um, I think it's Arian's time. And it's a shame that she didn't win the prosecutorial election, but it's one of those things where things happen for a reason. Slay, if you're listening to me, I know that last election was tough, but you were meant for something bigger than being the prosecutor. You were meant to be on that bench. This is your time. And anything I can do to anybody that listens to me and is going to pay attention to me, Arian Slay has taught me so much. She's an amazing lawyer. She's an amazing prosecutor. 
she's an amazing person. Her and her family truly have the characteristics of what we look for in Washtenaw County. They understand justice. They understand how to objectively review everything. Arian Slay is the perfect fit for the circuit court bench. So, we're behind her 110%. Slay, you're going to do this. District court. Things are getting really heated in district court. I'm going to defend somebody tonight. I've been hearing some murmurs that's bothering me what I'm hearing. There's four candidates for the district court bench. And Judge Tabby is retiring. And his seat became opened. Now, let me start with this. Nobody knew that Judge Tabby was retiring because there's murmurs about people moving into Washington County to run for office. And those rumors are bullshit. I hope to quash it tonight. Four candidates are as follows. Carl Barr. Um, Stuart Collis. Fawn Armstrong. And Torchio Feaster. Let's break these people down a little bit. Carl Barr. I don't really know Carl Barr that well. I know that John Barr is involved or was involved in the civil nuisance case with EMU. And I'm told they're kind of like the Republican candidate. Um, I don't know the guy, but I do know this. Not knowing him well, he doesn't do a lot of criminal law. And that's my biggest concern, not putting Carl Barr down. But the district court is the seat that's closest to the community. We need somebody with really vast knowledge of criminal law. And I just, you know, I can't get behind Carl Barr based upon that factor alone. I just don't think he's connected to the community the way we're going to need somebody connected to the community. So nothing against him, but he does not have my support, obviously. Um, Stuart Collis, I'm not going to dignify that with a response. <laughs> just move on. Uh, Fawn Armstrong. Fawn is a prosecutor. Fawn's a hard worker. Um, I have no issue with Fawn. I personally like Fawn Armstrong. But I don't think she's the right candidate for this position. Um, we're completely backing Torchio Feaster. Now, let me tell you about Torchio. He moved to Washington County because he had roots at EMU. His wife took a position in Washtenaw County, and the man took a pay cut to join the Washtenaw County Public Defender's Office. And the work he's done as a PD has been nothing short of spectacular. Torchio grew up knowing the importance of education. He had good role models, but it was a struggle for Torch. Um, he busted his ass to get where he is today. He's a great lawyer. He's the type of lawyer who, as arrogant as I am at times, I will pick Torchio's brain. I mean, I respect him. I think there's attributes of Torchio that are um, more advanced than me in criminal law. I just really am impressed with him. But it's not just his ability as a criminal defense lawyer. He just gets what this community needs. I've been hearing people say how he moved from Genesee County to run for the open seat. Well, let me call bullshit on that. Number one, we didn't even know there was going to be an open seat. There was no inside information. 
Um, it just happened when he was here. Number two, he did a lot of great things in Genesee County, and as somebody who practices in Flint sometimes, I can tell you right now, if Torch would have stayed in Flint, he probably would have won the next election out there if he just wanted to be a judge. He moved to Washington to benefit his family. And in that beneficial move for his family, I think our community has benefited a lot. Um, he's connected to the community. He's got children in this community. He's an excellent lawyer. He's an excellent human being. He gets what's going to be needed. And here's my fear. I was talking to somebody I respect a lot today. And I said to them, on the district court level, what's going to happen when we have that kid who has a CCW, or has a drug possession charge? What happens when there's the poor black kid from Ipsy that catches his first case, and this kid has a future? The judge in a nonviolent crime has to see that that poor kid, that child of color who may have not had educational opportunities has a future to be protected can they relate to that young man or woman i think torchio can punishment does not always have to be the answer now i know in a lot of my cases we're dealing with capital cases i'm dealing with people accused of rape i'm dealing with people accused of murder i'm dealing with some prosecutor offices that don't give a shit about the truth um i'm dealing with major cases so we're not asking for passes on those cases. What we're asking for is the poor kid who can't afford retained counsel, who has a chance for a future, and made a mistake. Can we keep that kid out of the system? And in the same breath, when somebody is a dangerous society, can we punish them properly? A preliminary examination should not just be a rubber stamp for the prosecution. And that's what's become far too often. It's such a low burden to begin with, but we do need a district court just, justice that's going to see the facts, going to see the forest from the trees, going to connect with that community. And I think Torchia Feaster's a rising star. There's no question of the four candidates. He is the most equipped for this position. And I'm not just saying because I'm friends with the guy. I mean, I will tell you, I've known Fawn Armstrong longer than Torchio Feaster, and I like Fawn. I really do. I think Fawn's a talented legal mind. Um, but I just think Torchio is more connected with the community. Hmm. And gotta back him. You know, I think you just have to. If we're worried about the future of Ypsilanti, Torchio Feaster is somebody that can bridge that gap. He's somebody who can protect the future of kids that are at risk and still protect the community from people that are truly dangerous. He will see the difference there. And that's why we're with him. I think Torchio Feaster and Arian Slay becoming jurist in Washtenaw County is something that can only make our county better. And uh, that's why we're behind those two. Shifting gears to Shiawassee a little bit, you know, Mayor Ken, you need to catch up with me. I definitely want to see you on the board of commissioners out there. You know, there's been some crazy things going on in Shiawassee, and I 
Did not get to read Josh Champlain's article yet. I only saw the headline. And all I could say about Cindy Garber is, my God. Open mouth. Insert foot. What is wrong with some of these people, man? I don't... It's just weird. You know, no matter where we stand in the political half circle, and I don't care where you stand, believe me, if you know me, you know, I truly don't give a damn if you're Republican or Democrat. I have Republican clients. I have Democrat clients. I have black clients, white clients, blue, green, and every color in between. All I care about is upholding the Constitution. That's all I give a shit about. But to disrespect somebody else's culture, to disrespect somebody else's beliefs, I don't get it. And Mike, absolutely. Josh and I will need to do a live on his story today. Josh is killing it, man. Josh Champlain, he's an amazing journalist. I could see why certain prosecutor roles just want to put a gag order on me. It's always funny. You can say something in the press, but if I say something back, now it's time to put a gag order. All about justice, right guys? Whatever. Stay tuned on that. Now, to shift gears a little bit, I've heard a lot of trash being told about my baseball knowledge. And that's frustrating to me. The live audience was a better baseball player than me. Had a better baseball career. And and Joe Abera, Josh Champlain is a rock star. Josh, if you're watching, you are a total rock star. And I mean that even when you burn my clients. You report what you feel is right, and I respect the hell out of that. You know, the Phillies... This is a Grable discussion. Who knows more about baseball in the 80s? And Grable's 10 years older than me. And the story with Scott Grable, people that know me know the story, right? Scotty's 10 years older than me. Same high school, same college, same law school, same travel baseball leagues. It was almost like I was shadowing Scott Grable. One of the things Scott and I talk about frequently in text messages is baseball from the 80s. And the 1980 Phillies won it all. I am a little toddler. I'm like four years old when the Phillies win the world championship in 1980. That's one of my first memories. And I've watched it so many times throughout the years on ESPN Classic. And the 80 Phillies, what a team. And what happened in the 1980 season was we had a chance for a dynasty. The Carpenter family, they built this amazing franchise. And the Phillies in the 70s, if you study history, you'll see that they were always on the verge, right? Then in 1979, they signed Pete Rose. And Pete Rose was the straw that truly stirred the drink. I know Reggie Jackson said that. When he went to the Yankees in 77, but Pete Rose made the Phillies who they were. Special, special player. Wasn't the best player on the team. Mike Schmidt was the MVP. Steve Carlton won the Cy Young. But Rose was a leader, man. Just a maniac on the field. My whole life when I played ball, I always wore number 14 because I loved Pete Rose so much. So Pete comes to the Phils, and a year later we win it all. What happens after that year is really bizarre. 
1981, there's a strike. And the Phillies make the postseason, but then they lose to the Expos in the split-season format. And new ownership comes in, and they're going to break this team apart. And how they broke this team apart, whew, man, was insane. Let's go through some of the trades we made in Philadelphia. And let's start with this. Dallas Green was the manager of the 1980 Phillies. And he left to be the general manager of the Chicago Cubs. Now, right now, you need to understand a couple things. Dallas Green not only managed us to a world championship in 1980, he was head of scouting. So Dallas Green knew the Phillies minor league system better than anybody else. You probably shouldn't make trades with the guy that knows you better than yourself, right? And the Cubs completely depleted the Phillies farm system. All sorts of weird things went down. But if we look at the 1980 Phils, let's start the catcher position. Bob Boone. Bob Boone was the starting catcher for the 80 Phils. And after 81, the Phillies sell him to the California Angels. And the rumor at the time was Bob Boone was not a great defensive catcher anymore. And Bob Boone goes on to win five gold gloves in the American League. Bob Boone ran the pitching staff. He was a great defender, solid all-around player. And losing that leadership behind the plate, it didn't make a lot of sense why we were doing that. But that was the beginning of things that started to crumble. Now the common theory was that Boone was traded so Keith Moreland would become the starting catcher. And Keith Moreland was a kid who looked like he had all the tools to be an all-star. Instead of making Keith Moreland the catcher, the Phillies trade him to the Cubs. They trade him for Mike Kruko. Kruko gets injured. Moreland goes on to have an excellent career with the Cubs. He's an all-star a couple times. And you start wondering, okay, what are we doing here, guys? Then we go to the infield. You got Pete at first base, right? And he's going to stay there for a while. At second base, we have Manny Trilo. Trilo was an amazing fielder, solid hitter, won MVP of the 1980 National League Championship Series. And we decide we want to trade him. We got this kid in Cleveland named Von Hayes. And Von Hayes got the nickname 5 for 1. We traded 5 players for Von Hayes. Matty Trillo being 1. But where we really dropped the ball was we included Julio Franco in the deal. Julio Franco went on to be a perennial all-star shortstop for the Cleveland Indians. Von Hayes did okay in Philly, but we never got past that trade. We lost an all-star second baseman, and we traded a kid who became an all-star shortstop. That's not good. But things were about to get worse. Remember when we said, be careful trading with the Cubs? Because Dallas Green knows our farm system, right? 
Larry Boa is a shortstop. Larry Boa is an excellent fielder. Had an attitude problem. We don't deal with people with attitude problems around here, right? Okay. <laughs> so the Phils want to trade Larry Boa. And they trade him to the Cubs. Here's Dallas Green again. And they trade him for Avande Jesus. Now, here's the deal. Avande Jesus was coming off a season where he won the reverse triple crown. He was last in the league in hitting, home runs, and RBIs. He was making a lot of errors. We wanted Avande Jesus. Dallas Green played us here. Knowing the Phillies want to get rid of Larry Boa, what they did was, in addition to Larry Boa, they threw in a second baseman named Ryan Sandberg. So now Ryan Sandberg and Larry Boa get traded to the Cubs for Avande Jesus. Ryan Sandberg's a Hall of Famer today. We gave up Ryan Sandberg and a Julio Franco in two trades back-to-back where you had perennial all-stars right there. Sandberg wins MVP in 84. We start depleting our farm system. And we're getting screwed over by the Cubs. And nobody's picking up on this. Then we go to the outfield. Greg Luzinski, the Bull. The Bull was a big power hitter. But he started putting on some weight. And the feeling was Larry's, um, Lonnie Smith was going to take over for Greg Luzinski. So we get rid of Luzinski. We give him to the White Sox for some cash. Luzinski goes on to win Silver Sluggers with the White Sox. But now we got Lonnie Smith, right? And Lonnie Smith is going to be the left fielder for the next 10 years. For some reason, we trade Lonnie Smith to the Cardinals and get little back in return. Lonnie Smith goes on to win a couple world championships. He had a drug problem, but he was a very good ball player. We're single-handedly destroying this team right now. Then we got Big McBride in right field. Big McBride led the Phillies in hitting in 1980. We wanted this pitcher named Sid Mongey. We trade McBride. Mongey doesn't do much in Philadelphia. He's injured. At this point, we have traded six pivotal players from the 80 World Championship team with limited return, and we gave up two major prospects that went on to be a Hall of Famer and a perennial All-Star. To make matters worse, we had this kid in the minor leagues named George Bell, who wins MVP with the Toronto Blue Jays. We didn't think George Bell had what it took, so he gets picked in a Rule 5 draft. And then before the 1984 season, we decided to really shake things up. There's this outfielder in Detroit named Glenn Wilson. We want Glenn Wilson. And we trade Dave Bergman and Willie Hernandez <laughs> for Glenn Wilson. Willie Hernandez goes on to win Cy Young and MVP on the historic 1984 Tigers team. Bergman played a big role on that team. Glenn Wilson was okay. I want you to think about this. In 1984 season, 
the two MVPs of the National and the American League and the one Cy Young in the American League were traded from the Phillies organization for limited return. We single-handedly destroyed this organization and set us back. George Bell wins MVP with the Blue Jays in 87. Julio Franco's a perennial all-star at shortstop with the Cardinals. Ryan Sandberg's winning pennants, well not pennants, division titles with the Cubbies. Willie Hernandez winning World Series with the Tigers. How does this all happen? It didn't make sense. And we start signing free agents. We bring in Lance Parrish from the Tigers. Pay him big money. Bust. We trade for Phil Bradley with the Mariners. Didn't work out. I can, and I see my views are going down. People are getting tired of hearing about the Philly stuff. Talk more politics. <laughs> anyway, that is how the 80 Phillies were destroyed. And I'm sure the first half of this will get a lot of views when it gets published. And the second half is going to be like weird baseball fans who are going to me. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Law school can be a very difficult experience. The live audience agrees with that. You know, when you're in law school, especially you're far from home, it's like you join this cult, right? You're trying to find your way. How do you survive it? What do you do? And you hear so much bullshit. You know, I'm, I can only tell you about my time at Cooley. We heard at orientation, jumpstart, you had to do this to win. Then the SBA said this, and the Academic Resource Center said that. We heard study groups were good. We heard study groups were bad. Eventually... Um, the real hard workers form these study groups. I was in so many study groups in law school. Um, there was not a class that I did not have a study group for. And I always like to do my study groups, groups at night. Like, I would do, like, a study group, like, 9 o'clock on Friday night. And 8 o'clock on Saturday night. And 6 o'clock on Sunday and just want to be dedicated. What we got thinking about today, as my inner circle and I were commenting and laughing about law school, it was a long day. Um, we started thinking about the personalities and study groups. And let me start by saying this. We are not trying to insult anybody here. And some of the people in study groups were absolutely amazing, friends for life, and some are not. So what we got is a list of about 30 people, not names, but people and personalities that were in study groups. And again, this is only the Cooley experience. If anybody gets hurt by this, I sincerely apologize. But with each one of these personalities, we thought of somebody or multiple people in particular. So... The first people we thought of was the couple in love. The couple in love were the boyfriend and girlfriend that had to have all their classes together, had to have all their study groups together. They couldn't do lunch apart from each other. They had to be together. 
and they would want you to work your study group schedule around the time they could be together. We need to be together 24-7. They were definitely the couple in love, and they were a pain in the ass because they couldn't do anything alone. And the problem with the couple in love was the insecurity was amazing. You know, I remember one time, this one guy, he was in love with this girl, and um, she showed up like 15 minutes late for study group. Now understand something, in law school, we're all crazy, right? We gotta get through, we gotta get the grades to take the bar, we gotta get the jobs, blah, blah, blah. So, the girl's 15 minutes late. We can't wait for her anymore. Well, I don't know what to do. You know, I don't know where she's at. And he said to me one day, what if she's having sex with somebody else? I said, will that be on the final? <laughs> because if it's on the final, I'm concerned. If not, please stop. The couple in love was a nightmare. Complete nightmare to be in your study group. Because they had no identity. They had to be joined to each other. What a pain is. Am I right here? They were a pain in the ass, those two. Couple in love. Oh, my God. The next person I thought of was the anal retentive note taker. This was the person who... You've said, like, three things. I have two pages of notes. Like, what are you doing? Here's the thing about the anal retentive note taker. She usually had glasses. She was highly intelligent. And you were extremely into her because she was just so brilliant. She was cute, she was brilliant, but she was so locked in on her work. And you thought to yourself, if I really get to know her, this is gonna be a good relationship. Unfortunately, when you get to know her, you find out she was crazy, but she was an amazing note taker. You know, and she was one of those people that would show up to class multiple times and take all these detailed notes. She wasn't always that good with the information, but she was an amazing note taker. She was like the ultimate study group superstar. A little weird. Then you had Mr. Supplement. Mr. Supplement was the guy, the minute he got his financial aid check, he bought every supplement there was possible. And he would like push these books into a study room in the Cooley Library. You know, and he's trying to memorize all these supplements. Because somebody like Dean Sircone, he's like, oh, the supplements are your way to success. Yes, they're huge today. Um, <laughs> Megan, the anal retentive note taker wore glasses. Mr. Supplement was just a, he's just a weird guy. But yes, anal retentive, she definitely wore glasses. You know where we're going with this one. Then there was the mole. This was the guy that almost got choked out. The mole was the guy that came into your study group to give bad information. He was trying to protect the curve, right? So this ass would come in, purposely provide bad information, and once you realized he was doing that, you kind of wanted to just beat his ass outside. But you're worried about character and fitness, so you didn't do that. You politely ask him to leave. But the mole, he was something else. <laughs> Josh Champlain, 
Pretty sure I know who Mr. Supplement is. <laughs> Does he wear bow ties? Eric Moore, kind of like an ex. What's up, B? Then there was the good-looking girl. Just a traditional good-looking girl. She'd be sitting there playing with her hair, not paying attention to the notes. And, um, you know, it was just... You knew she was there because... She's there Friday night, 9 o'clock, studying, right? She's very pretty. But her head's kind of in the clouds. And she's just sitting there, and then about week 10, she comes up to you and says, Hey, I didn't take any notes the first nine weeks. Can you give them the notes? And everybody, like, every guy's, like, giving her all the notes. And then she's getting bombarded with information. Then there was the moocher. You know who the moocher is. This is the guy who didn't buy his own books. He'd be borrowing books from everybody. You guys would go out to eat. He never had any money. He's going to pay for the burger next week. <laughs> Megan Smith. Even I think I know who Mr. Supplement is. <laughs> the moocher, we know, has somebody who just... They were there. They're like the guy in basketball is just hanging for a cheap rebound underneath but won't go up and down the court. The moocher's the guy who always borrows money from you until his financial aid check comes in. <laughs> and then when the financial aid check comes in, you don't see him for a few weeks. Then it was a small enough amount of money where you forget about it till next term, and he does this till he eventually gets kicked out for his third time back to probation. Then there was a the non-traditional student. This was the older person, right? And they would be sitting in your group, like scolding you. You know, in my day, we did things like this. And you're like, you're trying to work as a team, and you're respecting the older person, but they get really bitter at you. That's too late for me. I don't want to drink coffee 9 o'clock. And I will. Nobody was forced to come to these study groups. But I got to tell you, my study groups in law school, it was like a religious experience. Like, people would just show up to be there. It was really weird. It was like they were coming to a club that wasn't serving alcohol in the Cooley Library. And all these different personalities would trickle in. Some would stay, some would leave, some would write blogs about it, and that leads us to the MySpace person. The MySpace person, that was somebody who when you're going over the material, all they're doing is surfing MySpace. Yeah, kids, this is like 2005 before Facebook was a big deal. And you're kind of concerned. Remember there was this one girl I liked in law school? And I used to write poetry and post it on MySpace, and eventually I took it down because I was concerned of getting like locked up or something, because it was weird poetry. And one day, I'm going over and I'm walking around like I'm leading the lecture, and I'm talking, and I keep seeing her on MySpace. Every time I circle around, she's like, all oh, my poetry, she was really into me. But I'm thinking to myself, if you don't start paying attention, it's not gonna work out. She's not a lawyer today. But that was the MySpace girl. Then you had the transfer student. This was the person. He could have went to any school he wanted, but he chose Cooley in Lansing, Michigan. He transferred from somewhere else by choice. He doesn't tell you that he was going to get kicked out of the other school and Cooley took a shot on him. 
He's very arrogant. I was an MSU. Right, but. And then there's the second taker. This is the poor gunshot, son of a bitch. This is the person who failed out of law school once. And they come back, right? And they don't tell you they were in law school once before. So you're like seduced into their brilliance because they heard the material once before. And they're like telling you, oh, proximate causation. Like, holy shit, how'd you know that? Like, oh, I was just paying attention in class. Now you become insecure because you're thinking to yourself, how did they see that? Holy shit. Well, they saw it because they failed once before. The second taker was interesting. Then there's a disbarred attorney. The disbarred attorney who had to go back to law school. This guy is really arrogant. And he starts telling you stories about cases that he's won. But he doesn't want to tell you he's been disbarred. And you're confused. Wait a minute. I'm in my third term of law school. What do you mean you want a jury trial? And he backs out the room slowly. It's like one of those want to get away commercials. Usually, the wild girls of law school Google them. And they find out the lawyer was disbarred. That kind of turns them on. It's a very confusing dynamic law school. Then there are the kids whose parents are attorneys. And because their parents are attorneys, they think they know everything. And they always start their statements like this. Well, my mother argued before the Missouri Supreme Court, and we know this. Or my dad's a big-time civil litigator in Michigan. Okay, great. And um, there's some amazing football players whose kids are in different fields. It doesn't matter what your parents do, but the parents who have kids that go to law school, the kids usually come in with this flair of arrogance. I'm stereotyping right now, but it was a thing. Then there was the guy who was a paralegal for 15 years. He's a little older. He's telling you war stories. He's got a family. He was going to go to law school right after college. Got a job as a paralegal. The money was okay. Then the firm downsized. He didn't know what to do. He took out financial aid. Cool, he took them. Actually, it's a pretty good insight. Then we had the guy who kicked ass at the unaccredited law school for one year and transferred in. What this individual will do, they'll wear a lot of jewelry and they'll tell you how they went to this other law school. They won't tell you it's unaccredited. And they'll break things down. I've been here before. I know how to do this. Blah, blah, blah. Kind of an interesting person. Eric Moore says his beer is getting warm. <laughs> uh, then there's the one who's got a scholarship because their parents are a professor. And they're there at Cooley and they're bragging that my dad teaches this or my mom teaches that. And they're there, and they lead with that a lot of them. Not everybody, because I'm friends with someone, I'm going to tell you. The ones that are there, because their parents are professors, they're there for the free ride, and it's almost like learned behavior. This one's my favorite. 
there's the guy that's there for one term, and he runs the football pool. Every week, he's taking your money for this football pool, and every week you lose the football pool. And he runs these fantasy football things. And he's the guy who tells you, hey, I'm going to Delaware next weekend. So at Delaware next weekend, lottery's $500 million. So if you guys want to give me some money to go buy some lottery tickets, I got your back. Now you're in law school, and all you're thinking is, oh, we $500 million. Let's all put some money in. So we all put $100 in, without realizing this guy's just stealing the money, right? You don't see him after finals. Then there's the one who goes off the deep edge. The one that goes off the deep edge, you're convinced this person is crazy. They're saying things in gibberish, right? They're like confused. They look like they're a serial killer in class. They can't communicate with you. Well, they're the ones that are going to win the book awards. <laughs> they're going to have to be the best in the class. Then they're going to be lousy lawyers. But the deep edge guy, you got to watch that one. Then there's the one who announces they're going to be a prosecutor. When I get out of law school, I'm going to be a prosecutor. And they read something about scoring guidelines in some Google article. And they are a pain in the ass because they think they're prosecutors already, right? So they're telling you everything. Well, a prosecutor would do this and a prosecutor would do that. And you're saying to yourself, holy shit, dude, it's torts. There are no prosecutors. Stop. Same thing can be said for the defense guy. By the way, in law school, I was never going to do criminal defense work, so believe me, kids at home, you don't know what the future holds. Just get the grades and go with it. Then there's the law school stars. This is the guy that wins the moot court competition. The moot court competition is usually judged by other students. And this guy wins it. Wins it. He's in the Cooley Pillar newspaper. He's holding up his trophy like he won a Super Bowl ring or something. He's a pain in the ass. Because he's going to lead everything. Well, when I won the moot court competition, like, oh, dude, shut the f*** up. Nobody cares that you won this little game at Cooley. But the moot court guy, Jesus Christ. Then there's the one who doesn't show up the finals because his family makes a lot of donations to the school. There was this one kid, I swear to God. We would see him three weeks a year. Never showed up the finals. Used to pop into study groups once in a while, and he graduated with honors. Never saw this kid take a final. His family made tons of donations. You do the math. Then there's the one poor guy who... He's very honest with you. I've got 14 felonies. And I'm never going to get past character and fitness. But I'm here at 2 o'clock in the morning studying because I want to show that I could do it. You feel bad for this guy, right? He's got, like, gang tattoos he can't get off. And he, you know, got out of prison. He comes to law school. He wants to start fresh. He took out some financial aid. Poor guy's not going to get through character and fitness, but he's a role model. Because you're thinking to yourself, well, shit, this guy's working hard. I should be working hard, too. Felony guy was all right. Then there were the girls who dated the janitors at Cooley. 
There was this one janitor. He used to sell really. He used to sell pot that everybody loved. And this guy used to come in to the conference room we were in and dump. He'd take the trash out, right? And we had like these two girls in our study group that would run to the janitor like he was the second coming. We learned later that they were hooking up and he was giving them drugs. Guy had an amazing angle, man. He would be hooking up with the hottest little school girls selling pot while working as a janitor. Then there was the guy who was a pain in the ass who was trying to prove to his girlfriend that he was smarter than her. Well, my girlfriend works in sales and I'm doing the law school thing. And then there was the girlfriend trying to prove to her boyfriend. These people were anal because every hypothetical. Well, my girlfriend says this or my boyfriend says that. And you just want to like, oh my God, shut up. But, you know, they were motivated. Then there was the one sweet girl from Small Town, USA. Her boyfriend is back home in the state she came from. And she swears they're going to stay together. And every break, what she does is she looks at their MySpace page and I'm holding hands and she thinks about them. Then one day, this girl, she'll tell you that she broke up with a long-term boyfriend, but she thinks they'll be together again one day. And she wants to go out with you. But she also lays some ground rules. She goes, if my boyfriend ever visits me from so-and-so state, I don't want him knowing about us. But we're not really together. I'm like, okay, whatever. So you date her. Then the boyfriend flies in from out of state. So when her boyfriend flies in or her ex-boyfriend flies in, you like go ghost, right? Because she set the rules. Then she's pissed off you're not talking to her because the boyfriend's there. You know, that's what she requested. This becomes a topic of conversation after every goddamn study group she's in. Well, just because he's in town, why aren't you talking to me? Because you said not to. Oh, my God. That is a Facebook Live on its own. Then there's that girl who gets way too dressed up for study group. You know, it's like, huh. You're sitting there in your sweats and baseball cap, and she's coming in like she's either going to the Supreme Court or going to a club. And you're really confused. Like, wow, she really is overdressed for study group tonight. You're just kind of sitting there. Then there's the cat woman. And I love cats, so I don't mean disrespect. But this is the woman who's got eight cats back home, right? And she's got pictures on her cell phone of her cats. And during every break she shows you, this is Tiger, and this is Milk, and this is Lightning, and these are her cats. And she starts crying. Then you're getting her tissues, and you can't study because she's crying about her cats. <laughs> There's the guy who goes MIA till week 13. And he comes in. He goes, hey, can I get those outlines? It's only like 15 weeks. And this guy's gone the whole goddamn time. But he wants them. You feel bad, you give them to him. He's all confused. At the end of the day, law school was a pretty interesting experience. <laughs> but, um... The study groups were amazing. All right, guys.
They were just study groups of law school. It's personalities. If anybody's feelings were hurt, I apologize. It was pretty funny, huh? Alright, have a good night. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.